what I would say as just general advice is don't get so myopic looking at your own business that you ignore those external things because they will be factors in how you have options moving forward. Welcome to the Leaders of B2B podcast, a weekly show where we bring you interviews and in the weeds expertise with today's B2B experts and thought leaders. You can see more about today's episode and guest by visiting our website at leadersofb2b.com. This episode is brought to you by Content Allies. We help B2B companies launch revenue generating podcasts. We schedule interviews between you and your ideal prospects and strategic partners. You show up for engaging conversations, we handle everything else. Ready to build a podcast that grows your business in just one hour per week? Reach out to us at contentallies.com. Hey leaders, welcome back. This is Ledge. Today I am excited to welcome Scott McGill. Scott, I would love if you would give an introduction of yourself and your company for the audience who doesn't know you yet. Sure. Thank you, David. So I'm Scott McGill. I'm president and CEO at Coriel Life Sciences. Now, I was very interested in Coriel and what you all do. I have never heard of anything like this, and I was fascinated. I said right away, all right, we got to get you on the show. So give the summary of this technology and approach that you guys have, because I think it's fascinating. Sure. Yeah. The fundamental premise of the company is that we are using new science and technology to help people understand which medications will actually be safe and effective for them, largely because of variation in your DNA. So as it turns out, medications don't work for everybody. We all know that, right? Every time a doctor prescribes a pill, they're really experimenting. They're, they're hoping that you are one of the people who might gain benefit from that particular medication. But we all respond differently. Our DNA itself actually controls the pace at which medications will be processed by our body. And we can now measure that using genetic testing so that we can predict in advance of someone taking a pill that might be unsafe or ineffective for them, whether or not that's the right pill at all. So we operate behind the scenes in a lot of ways, helping organizations to implement pharmacogenomics, which is the name of this science, pharmacogenomic-enabled services among large populations. So we help self-insured employers, pension funds, government agencies, large, typically large groups that are receiving their care from a single health plan. Yeah, I mean, you say like, oh, we all know that sometimes, you know, drugs don't work. And, you know, it's like, I don't think I knew that. And I, <laughs> I'm relatively sort of educated in this stuff. I mean, that fascinating. Like we in America have kind of, you know, there's a pill for everything kind of culture. Wait a second. You know, those actually need to be tested to work, you know, specific to my DNA. Like this did not occur to me. And I feel like there's a big education hurdle that must be in place for things like this, because let's face it, I'm a big nerd. And if I didn't know that, there's a lot of people that probably don't know that. Well, there's, there's certainly a lot of money in the pharmaceutical industry to make sure we don't know that as a general populace. But the, the fourth leading cause of death in America is actually medication mismanagement. So there's about 120,000 people a year in the U.S. die from accidental overdosing, which is not because they took too many pills, but because their body actually wouldn't allow those pills to be processed fast enough. So those chemicals built up and built up and built up, and they wound up in the hospital and potentially even fatally experiencing an overdose from the, those medications. So it's a major, major issue. And beyond just the safety concerns, so many of the drugs we take are just ineffective. They don't do their job. 
And in many cases, we don't know about it until we have all of the downstream impact of not effectively being treated. So one of the biggest cases of that, one of the best-selling blood thinners in the world is a drug called Plavix. Plavix is prescribed for really standard of care for anybody who has a cardiac issue, a blood clot, a stroke. Well, about 27% of the U.S. population cannot metabolize that drug at all. I happen to be one of those people. So I've had my genes tested. There's a particular gene called CYP2C19. I am an ultra-rapid metabolizer on CYP2C19, which makes that drug race through my body way too fast, and it never actually activates into its therapeutic form. If you're Pacific Islander or Asian, that the prevalence of that same issue goes up to about 50%. So that drug is like no better than a coin flip as to whether or not it's going to work. And this is just unfortunately not known, as you say, David, it's just not something that the American populace that is inundated with commercials for drugs, with people dancing through fields of daisies, you know, the, this drug is going to solve all your problems. That's just simply not the case. I, I don't know right now. Where do I submit my blood? I want this right now. I just want to make sure that... Quite frankly, this is something we all should know about ourselves. Like I'm in a fortunate state in my life where I don't take any medications today, but because I've had my genetics tested, my genes don't change. Your DNA doesn't change, right? It's ours for the rest of our life. So you can almost think about it like an allergy list, right? Knowing now that there are about three dozen drugs, some of the best-selling drugs in the world, I should never take. That's information I can carry with me for the rest of my life. So any medical event, any doctor's visit, any new prescriptions that are prescribed for me, I can check that list to see, oh, wait a minute, this one is actually not right for me. So that's going to ultimately become standard of care over the next 10 to 15 years because the testing has gotten very cheap. The science is incredibly rigorous, but it's something that today is just starting to make its way into the mainstream. Right. When you're on the bleeding edge of these things and you control the company that, that does that, that's pretty awesome. But you do have this, from a business standpoint, you have the category defining education problem. We often see that with solutions that are new and unknown, we now have to take on the burden of educating people so they know that such a thing exists. So there's that. And then, you know, then the idea of go to market is like, well, who's the best customer or group of people or professionals or businesses to help distribute, you know, our thing for us. So yeah, I'd love to talk about that from the business angle, this kind of reminds me of one of those things where like, you know, the thought experiment of, well, if you cured cancer in your garage, then what, you know, how do you tell people in a way that they become aware and believe you and then help you distribute the answer? Yeah, it is a tough challenge. And anything in healthcare moves very, very slowly for good reason. You know, it's not just because the system is draconian, which in some cases, parts of it are, you know, the regulatory space is something that moves very, very slowly for a reason. We don't want to unnecessarily put people in danger. So the way in which new interventions make their way into the market tends to be that they really need to be first promoted by the physician community. And then ultimately that will provide evidence enough to the insurance carriers, CMS, which is the group that oversees Medicare services, to ultimately make it a standard of care. But the axiom is it takes about 17 years actually before a new intervention makes its way into standard of care. Now, that axiom was created at a time in which the internet didn't exist. And so information wasn't moving as fast as it is today. So we're certainly seeing more rapid adoption than that. However, we started this company 10 years ago 
though there's been tremendous progress in those 10 years, and we by a long shot are not the only people working in this space, by the way. So we're not just out there by ourselves waving big flags. But in those 10 years, there's been a lot of progress, but it's still not standard of care. So maybe that axiom does still exist, that it's going to be another seven everybody gets tested. Is that kind of like maddening when you know the answer to something and you just need to tell enough people to make them care? I mean, this is critical stuff. Like you said, like, I don't want to be taking a pill that might not work for me, but it's supposed to save my life in the case of I need it. I feel like everybody should know that. And it must just drive you crazy sometimes that they don't. Yeah, you have to get over that idea that, you know, something that can be so obvious, why isn't everybody doing it? Everybody has their own perspectives. And even when we have organizations that we're working with, like a pension fund, let's say, that has thousands and thousands of members, and the pension fund has said, we want you to test everybody in this pension fund, we still have a hard time convincing people to even take the test, to even do it. And trepidation around that can be things like privacy concerns or how do I know this is really free, you know, that this is going to be paid for by this? Or if, if you test my DNA, are you going to find out something about my health that I don't want to know, right? Are you going to find out that I have a predilection to Alzheimer's disease or Huntington's disease, you know, things that are heavily genetically associated? And it's a concern. And so you don't have everybody have this overwhelming desire to have this test done because in some cases they may not want to know the answer. Right. And there are a fair number of people that don't take medications yet that might want this information later, but don't want it now. I always think that having this information as soon as possible is for the betterment of everybody, because when I'm being rolled into the ER because I had a heart attack, you know, I want to be able to have it as part of my medical record that part of my recovery should not be the use of Plavix. Right? For me personally, that drug is no better than me eating Tic Tacs. I don't take Plavix today, but boy, I really need that to be part of my medical care in the future should that event ever arise. Right, which gets to the whole like universal medical record thing, but you guys aren't going to try to solve that one today. You bring up a, a tremendous barrier to really the adoption of these kind of services, and that is portability of medical data is effectively hamstrung in the United States, right? Where, where you get your care effectively has a data lake, right? That data sits within that system. There are some health information exchanges that have tried to make that data a little bit more portable among little regional hospital systems or collaborations between different systems. But by and large, you know, if I were traveling on vacation to the other side of the country and I had some medical event, my medical records would not be available to whoever was treating me there. And that's a real big problem. Yeah. And everybody who's tried to solve this has just been hamstrung. Well, there's definitely efforts going on. I actually think that Eric Topol, who wrote a book a while ago called The Patient Will See You Now, has the right idea, which is effectively that you will become the conduit of your data as you move from physician to physician using portable devices. So your medical record will really be on your phone or accessible from your phone, and you will be the key to transmitting that to the next physician or the next hospital system. Right. So y'all have thought about this as a benefit that organizations of mass membership or small membership, you know, can sort of bring to the table because I would imagine ultimately it's really good for folks to not have people in their roles, you know, on their roster of workers that are potentially not being served well by medical interventions then. 
Yeah, that's right. There's a huge advantage for the system, whoever is ultimately paying for the healthcare of these populations. We published a landmark study in March of last year on the economic outcomes for the teachers retirement systems of Kentucky, which is a pension fund that's been running this program with us for about four years, actually maybe maybe five years now. Over a period of 32 months of outcomes post-intervention, that organization saved $37 million in cost avoidance because the individuals that went through this program weren't going to the emergency room, weren't going to their doctor as often. They didn't have unnecessary medical testing compared to a risk-normalized control group. So this was the only thing different about these people was that they went through this testing and now they actually had the ability to steer medical care for these people in a much better way. Same goes true for a self-insured employer, you know, someone who has a self-insured plan where they're paying for the health of tens of thousands of people or even less, doesn't really matter. The economic benefits and the employee engagement benefits, absenteeism goes down. Overall cost of care goes down, especially when we have the program rolled out to dependents of those employees as well. So mom doesn't have to stay home as often as a child, you know, they're coming to work more often. So huge benefits to the system beyond just individual patient care. But of course, patients get healthier too. So it's a win-win-win all around. Okay, Scott. So as the leader of this enterprise, I'm always interested in what was your path to get here? Lessons learned? And is it an entrepreneurial path? Is it from industry? Is it a mix? You end up in the leadership seat. And I think there's a hindsight bias that people kind of go, oh, he's a CEO. Well, what happened before that? And how'd you get here? What are the lessons learned to get you into the spot where you get to, to lead a cutting edge enterprise like this? Um, certainly not a direct path. I think that's probably common with most leaders. My education, my undergraduate education was in English and philosophy. I then did an MBA post, you know, his graduate work. Started out in actually working for what was then Towers Perrin. It's now Willis Towers Watson, working in the kind of healthcare consulting space. But really, the common thread through my all of my employment was the application of technology to business. So I went from there to a consulting organization doing technology consulting to the chemical industry. I worked for Roman Haas, then led to the portion of the acquisition of Roman Haas by Dow Chemical but ultimately found myself working in a more of an entrepreneurial role in a small medical research group called the Coriel Institute for Medical Research. So after the acquisition of Roman Haas, I had an opportunity to take over a leadership role in technology there at this medical organization. And I thought, well, this would certainly be a lot different working in a small organization versus a very, very large. Dow Chemical is 75,000 employees. I went down to an organization of 150 employees. So I really enjoyed the agility of that. There were so many very frustrating days in large organizations where you feel like nothing's really happening. You know, we would have meetings to see who we should invite to the meeting. And it was just maddening in that way. So I have, HR would say, an inherent bias for action. So I'm always looking for what can we do to make sure that we're not where we were, that we can actually move ahead. So for me, you know, that technology is an enabler of that. So I've always kind of focused my career around how can we use data better than we do now? How can we engage individuals in technology that enable processes and process efficiency? And this became just a very obvious one for me. When I was 
brought into the into Coriel, the Medical Research Institute, it became very apparent very quickly that there was an opportunity to launch something new. So Coriel Life Sciences is a spin-out from the Coriel Institute that was really focused on how do we take this genetic data and turn it into something doctors can actually use? How do we broaden that so that it's something that populations can actually use? And so what we've really focused on is the technology components of doing that. So we're not a laboratory. We work with hundreds of labs around the world because that laboratory science, that needs to be exacting in what it produces. But what the real key is, how do you take the results of the lab test, which is really just the detection of variation of the genome, and turn that into something that a doctor can meaningfully say, I'm going to put this person on this pill instead of this one. That's a data challenge and a technology challenge. And it's something that, in my mind, from an aptitude perspective, it is actionable. And it's for me, it's puzzle solving. That's something that I always kind of, at my core, enjoy. It invigorates me to do that. So that you experience the entrepreneurial path first through the idea of smaller, faster, more nimble, and paired with a meaningful problem to solve or to commercialize, I guess. The problem had been solved and now it's like, hey, other people should know about this. Yeah. Well, I would say that it's still being solved. The breadth of knowledge of the human genome grows every day. What we knew about medication response to genetic variation 10 years ago was a fraction of what we know now. All through this period, the science has continued to evolve, to grow, to mature. What needed to happen, however, was implementation models for how to actually make use of it needed to be developed so that the science could be brought into clinical workflows in a non-disruptive and supportive way. The problem was really not the science, right? The science is going to sort itself out. There's lots of great scientists working those aspects. It was how do we take the work of that and actually make it meaningful? Yeah, I guess that just occurred to me. This is a pretty tremendous workflow issue because every day there's a new drug that comes out. And every time you test somebody, the overall population shifts, which means your percentages may or may not be representative if you have a major influx of a particular subset of humans that exhibit a certain genomic trait set. You need to end up with an enormous amount of data that you're crunching all the time. Yeah, we go beyond just the genomics as well, which is this idea of pharmacogenomic testing is a wonderful new piece of insight we can provide to physicians. It's something that they typically have not had access to in the past, but it's not a silver bullet, right? Taking that test is not going to just tell you this is exactly the five medications you should be taking because we can tell you why one might not be wrong, but that doesn't tell you whether drug A works well with drug B and drug C and drug D. So what we've really focused on is putting the genetic information in the context of a much larger, much more comprehensive review that looks at drug interactions, food interactions, you know, the things people smoke and drink, whether or not the conditions they suffer are compatible with the drugs they're taking, a whole host of other risk factors that might make an overall plan appropriate or inappropriate for that individual. And that takes both really sophisticated clinical decision support tools but it also takes clinicians that know how to be case managers and review these different individuals to say, all right, clearly there's some risk concerns here for three of these five or six drugs. Let's find alternatives that make better sense for this person. So it's a combination of human and technology still, 
But that really is, I think, the state of the art of the moment because, you know, ultimately there's not a perfect medical device that can account for all those variables that are responsible for ultimately a good plan versus a not good plan. And you made reference early on to the idea that there's a pharmaceutical complex in America that just wants everybody to think there's a pill, you know, that suits and works for everything. And I also think like as a business person, like, well, if I look at this and I go, I have the ability to manufacture medicines and every single person is going to need their own nice complex little thing. That seems like a really good business opportunity. So is anybody talking about that, that, hey, sell me my unique profile of medicines for all my stuff? That actually sounds like a bazillion dollar idea. It would be amazingly costly to do. You need to know a lot more about genetics for the individual in order to do that. The other challenge is, of course, every drug to market has to go through FDA safety approvals. So what you're making is very unique drugs for every individual each of those are going to have to go through some sort of form of trial in order to make their way to market. Now, that said, the whole space of personalized medicine is evolving, and we're kind of, we're shedding some of those older paradigms of how do medications actually go through a clinical trial so that they make their way to market. And the old legacy system was, we're going to get a number of people to sign up for a trial. We're going to give some of these people the drugs. Some of them are going to get a placebo. Ultimately, what we want to prove is that the drug is safe enough that 50% or more of these individuals saw some beneficial effect and did not actually have a safety concern. But that doesn't really tell you about the 2%, the 10%, the 15% that it actually harmed along the way. What the outcomes of those individuals' experience become the safety warnings on the jar. But ultimately, if I'm one of those people that's in the 15%, boy, I'd sure like to know that before my doctor prescribes it to me. So that's the promise of this new process is how can we let you know ahead of time before the pill is prescribed that this is unlikely to work for you or it's even dangerous for you? Right, right. The complexity piles and piles and piles. As a CEO looking at that in charge of you know pushing an organization forward, I imagine you spend a lot of time thinking about reduction of complexity. What's that like? What's the prescription for that from top down? You've got to make this consumable for your own people. Like if I don't even understand what we do here, I sure can't tell anybody else what we do here. Yeah, the science itself is relatively straightforward from a concept perspective, right? It's you've got some variations in the genome that impact how medications are going to actually behave for that person. Once you kind of get a core grasp of that, everything that we wrap around that, clinical decision support, population analytics, outreach and engagement, all of that just becomes additional services that support the implementation of that core science. We obviously train our people when we have new employees come in and all that. The harder challenge is really explaining all of this to lay people outside of our employment and the science community. Those who benefit the most from this tend to be people who take a lot of pills. So the people who take a lot of pills tend to be more elderly. So now we're talking about cutting-edge scientific concepts, scientific and technology components that are employed in a process that I now need to explain to my grandmother. The ability to really simplify all of this process into terms that aren't themselves confusing. You know, we talk in terms of this is a test that will help to understand your compatibility with medications. 
So we don't talk about genetics when we're enrolling new individuals in a pension fund. We talk about this is a test that's just going to tell your doctor whether or not a medication is right for you or not, whether it's compatible with you physically. And that tends to resonate better than saying this is a genetic test or a DNA test or certainly not a pharmacogenomic test. That's an interesting turn of phrase there because I'm thinking right away, like you could piggyback on this. You know, I watch a lot of TV and you know, ask your doctor about Plavix. Now you can say, well, you don't need to ask your doctor, you know, just bring them this piece of paper. <laughs> that might be very effective. I like that. Yeah, we are still the only country in the world that actually advertises medications. So talk about, you know, in your journey to leadership of an organization, like lessons learned, axioms, you know, things that you have leaned into repeatedly and maybe, you know, maybe even learned the hard way as the rest of the audience sort of charts their own path. There's certainly some lessons learned that I just keep in mind, I think, as we approach every new endeavor. One is everything takes longer than you expect. Certainly when it comes to contract negotiations and, you know, spinning up new business and all of that, the best intentions never actually wind up being what is the ultimate manifestation of reality. We have some of our contract relationships go years before we actually start work with them, which is, in, you know, in terms of running a business, very challenging. It's very challenging from a, an ability to predict and forecast revenue and growth of the business and all that so what you really need to do is to diversify what you know, those opportunities in a way that adjusts for the peaks and valleys of actual revenue generation. The other thing I think that has resonated for me, at least in the medical world, is if you don't have the patient's buy-in, then it doesn't matter if the doctor is convinced or the hospital system is convinced or the payer is convinced. The patient is ultimately where the intervention lives. And if they see value, if they understand how it'll benefit them, then it's a much, much easier thing to actually implement. So for us, we really do focus very, very keenly on ensuring that the patient experience is something that they enjoy. They are in full control of their data at all times. So anytime we've ever been asked, like, do you sell people's data? We say, absolutely not. The patient owns their own data. We are a trusted third-party escrow of that information only for the period of time in which it is useful to their doctor and to them for their healthcare. So we really kind of moralistically, we don't ever cross that line. And I think that's important for me and it's important for the business to stay true to that. How about from a personal leadership perspective? You know, you got to show up every day and be top of your game and you got people who are dependent on you personally, professionally, you know, how do you, how do you keep it all balanced? Best practices as a CEO to, I don't know, not get lonely and all those things that happen to us up at the top. Yeah. I think it's really important that you enjoy and believe in what you do. So for me, this job is the most exciting thing I've done in my career, working at a chemical company, which was a great company. And I worked there for a long time. You know, the best we could do at the end of a big project was maybe make paint a little stickier. You know, we are constantly receiving feedback from patients that are telling us that this intervention gave them hope again. It made them feel normal again. It allowed them to play with their grandkids again. Those are invigorating. And we do try very hard to make sure that the entire organization is exposed to that sort of feedback. And certainly from my perspective, it's what keeps me excited about what we're doing. We've tested more than 2 million people throughout the course of the history of this company. That's amazing. You know, when I sit back and I think about the scale of what 2 million people would look like, 
you can't fit 2 million people in the Super Bowl stadium, right? You can't even come close to that. So how many people are out there that have been touched in some way by the work that we've been doing? That's what really gives me energy. Right, right. Yeah, I love that. Fantastic. Okay, so I always ask, you know, at the end of my interviews, B2B leaders, right? In general, healthcare, not healthcare, what have you, what should be on the radar? Like what maybe is on your radar that other people aren't seeing right now as they leave their organizations or what should they be paying attention to over the next two, three years? To sort of generalize across all different types of businesses, you have to look at macroeconomic trends. So for me, you know, what we're looking at is Right now, we've been living in an economy with an overinflated stock market. We're coming out of a pandemic. We've got supply line challenges all over. So we have to look at, you know, what are those forces external to our own businesses that are going to shape our ability to continue to remain agile in the market, continue to provide access to capital for expansion, you know, things like that. So what I would say as just general advice is don't get so myopic looking at your own business that you ignore those external things because they will be factors in how you have options moving forward. For us, you know, we're looking at healthcare trends. And of course, the pandemic was the biggest thing that, that happened in this country in 100 years when it comes to healthcare. And that has created some really interesting factors for us as we think about what we do moving forward. You know, a lot of our business is reliant on genetic testing from laboratories. Well, laboratories bought tons of testing equipment to accommodate COVID. So we have this now unbelievable capacity for testing in the market. And those same machines that do COVID testing do genetic testing for pharmacogenomics. So imagine what that does for a business like mine with an ability to now leverage competition in the market for the supply of genetic testing for our services to be able to say, hey, look, the price point doesn't need to be here anymore. I've got 100 other people that can supply the same test at a lower price. So again, just staying aware of macroeconomic trends as they impact your ability to do business, but it's something that, you know, you have to balance obviously against making sure that you're keeping the lights on with your own business. Right, right. And you had, in essence, like the value chain, it's not supply chain, but you had changes in the value chain that had nothing to do with your business, but that meaningfully reduced the cost of some type of input that you care about along that chain. And I think that's a great lesson for anybody to look at and say, you know, what am I maybe not paying attention to that's just outside my radar, but in fact has a pretty substantial implication for the negotiations that we might do with suppliers and vendors sure. and things of that nature. Yeah. yeah. And the other thing, you know, for us, the other big outcome of COVID in our space was COVID created a huge demand for mood disorder and mental health care in the country. So, the lockdown itself created a tremendous spike in anxiety, needs for anti-anxiety and depression medications. But even just having the condition itself, COVID and long COVID has created this demand for now actually getting care for depression and anxiety. As it turns out, depression and anxiety medications are incredibly implicated by genetic variation. So knowing which medication I should try before, you know, waiting in that six-week period, that eight-week period to see whether or not my new depression medication worked, if I can just cross some of them off the list by, by taking a simple test, it's going to speed the path to someone actually getting the therapy they need. 
Oh yeah, absolutely. Speaking from my own experience with mental health and drugs, my family, you know, that's huge. And you know, anybody that's been through that, I mean, I think that jumped out at me right away as a part of the solution that I kind of go like, I would love to see this in my life. And you can imagine the massive implications for work. I mean, if you can shorten the fact that somebody had to take short-term disability or FMLA or something because of, of mental health of themselves or a loved one, and that titrating up and down on medicines that may or may not do anything for you is just a years long slog for people with these types of, of concerns. So yeah, I think that that's tremendous. And that alone, all other drugs not even being considered is just a huge leap. So very, very cool stuff. Well, Scott, if anybody's resonating and interested and wants to talk to you or the company, what are the best channels to do that? Most folks, our website is always the best. So Coriel.com, C-O-R-I-E-L-L.com. And for David, for you personally and anybody else that's out there and interested, we will very shortly be launching an ability for individuals to engage in this whole healthcare process. So right off of our website, within the next couple of weeks, feel free to come back out, visit the site, and you can see how you directly, even if your plan doesn't sponsor it, or you're not involved in a pension fund that already has this program running, there's an ability for you to engage direct. So do keep an eye out for that. Yeah, very cool. Direct to consumer. That's a whole new business challenge too. We might have to come back and do a new another dive into the go-to-market on direct to consumer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What's really key there, and you know, the FDA has been very strongly signaling against direct to consumer genetic testing. So what we really do is we facilitate a telehealth model with a telepharmacist, teledoc, geneticists that operate as effectively an extension of your healthcare team that they also happen to use genetic testing in their process of evaluation. So not what I would consider, it's not a 23andMe, you know, direct to consumer genetic test. It's more a healthcare service. Scott, thanks so much for hanging out. This is a fascinating area of work and thanks for sharing about the actual things that you guys do and with your personal leadership insights. Really, really enjoyed it. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you, David. Thank you for listening. And we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Leaders of B2B podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please give us a five-star rating. And as always, you can see more information about this episode and all the resources mentioned at leadersofb2b.com.